Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven who are changing the world their way. As your host, I believe that to create sustainable change, we need a new wave of people interested in and working on doing it. With each episode, you will listen to a guest from a different corner of the globe explaining why their initiative matters. I hope this inspires you. Have you ever wondered who pays for the damage from natural disasters? Our guest has the answer. As co-founder and CEO of FutureProof, she's building a precise method to understand the financial risk of these disasters. The method creates a way to properly account for, prepare for, and allocate resources to climate-resilient projects. Before we listen to this week's conversation, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live. Alyssa Valderrama, welcome to Why It Matters. Hi, Luke. Glad to be here. I'm glad for you to be here, too, and to get into a topic that I don't know much about, uh, the intersection of insurance, tech, climate, something that I think is really missed by most people talking about climate in the industry and something that people may be listening who are trying to learn about climate or the problems and have like no idea what it means or what it's about. Um, but before going into what you guys are doing now, I would love to talk a little bit about you. So who is Alyssa and a bit more about why are you Alyssa the person doing the work that you do? What is it that you, you care about? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. Um, wow, that's deep. Um, I guess I'll start from kind of my childhood. Um, I grew up in San Diego and was lucky enough to grow up pretty close to the beach and was really like a surfer and an ocean lover as a child. And um, that kind of instilled in me it's an appreciation of nature, which people get from many different sources in their lives. But in my case, um, it was an appreciation of nature, but then also um, a sort of scandal, a scandalization. Because in San Diego, um, every time it rains, the ocean gets polluted because polluted stormwater runs off of our streets and sidewalks and goes straight to the ocean untreated. And it's so polluted that when it rains in San Diego, you know, the ocean is you know, effectively too polluted to swim in safely for 72 hours. So as a kid, I was like, wow, that's very confusing because the ocean is our number one amenity here. And yet somewhere somebody thought it made sense to not build the infrastructure that surely exists that could clean the stormwater before it gets drained into the Pacific Ocean here. Like who made that kind of cost benefit trade-off? And more broadly, I started noticing, um, you know, again, in, in my teenage years that it was kind of free generally to create pollution. There wasn't a real price on 
uh, despoiling the environment. And that bothered me. Um, and I was also intellectually intrigued <laughs> by the dysfunction. And so that sort of set me on like a, a fascinating, frustrating career long journey, which is how I got here. Um, it was not a, a straight line in any regard, but um, that's been the sort of like connective thread through everything I've done has been trying to get at some even partial real answer to that question of how to create some sort of a price signal around pollution, uh, environmental risk, now of course climate risk, but uh, it was certainly not straightforward in the sense that it was a mix of you know trying to get at the problem and also leveraging what, what I saw as my skills, right? Like, <laughs> Um, and so I ended up uh, going to law school after undergrad because I thought, well, you know, surely there's probably a regulatory approach um, that could be utilized to create some sort of a, you know, a legal regime, corporate governance, something to begin to account for pollution in this way. And I thought maybe there was a solution in, in securities law that I could, you know, exploit some regulation and say, oh, if we reinterpret this section of the Securities and Exchange Act, uh, you know, maybe it could start to encompass uh, some of these issues. And I, I really thought that that was going to be a possible solution. And I think that's actually borne itself out a little bit more in the 20 years <laughs> since I started thinking in that direction. But suffice to say that, like, I didn't find much, much in, like, the sort of domestic U.S. legal regime that I could sink my teeth into. Um, so I went and got a master's in international law. Um, at the LSE after law school, thinking that uh, you know maybe there was some international law component that I could kind of you know work with, and um, you know similarly, I just I didn't find much there that I could work with. I had a very interesting master's thesis around you know <laughs> what could be done, but I needed a job, right? I was like deeply in debt at that point, and I couldn't find anyone to pay me to sort of experimentally try my new cause of action. <laughs> You know, uh, as, as a young attorney, there was no firm that would hire me to do that kind of thing. So I decided, well, you know, I, I got to find a job and um, I didn't want to go work for a big law firm, just doing normal corporate law. I had an offer from a big firm, but I also had an offer from the Clinton Climate Initiative, which at the time was doing really innovative work around environmental project finance. And my friends thought, well, that's a strange thing for you to go do. But in my in my kind of brain, I thought, no, it's a logical thing for me to do. I can't find a broad holistic solution to the problem. But if I dive into kind of environmental project finance as an attorney, I can start to understand the pockets of, you know, capital markets where environmental benefit and financial benefit are in alignment. And from there, maybe I can start to understand the contours of you know, the system in a way that's, you know, maybe a little bit different instead of starting with discrete areas of the market and building out from there. But that sounded like a, a plausible way to approach it. And also there was a job there for me, crucially. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it was right. Um, it was important at the time. Um, so much to my parental chagrin, I turned down the corporate law job uh, and went to go <laughs> work for the Clinton Climate Initiative, earning something like $40,000 a year, moved to New York City. It was a very hard place to live on that salary, but I was very excited about the work, which was 
uh, diving into areas that were new and exciting. Uh, for example, um, you know, financing energy efficiency retrofits for commercial real estate and trying to find ways to help drive capital into those projects. And those projects were exciting for me because there was a place where, you know, yeah, you could talk to the owner of the Empire State Building and explain to him that if he invests $40 million in retrofitting his building to make it more energy efficient, there's a positive ROI because he can save $8 million a year in avoided energy costs, right? So that was like an exhilarating construct to me because it's like, okay, okay, now we're getting somewhere we can start to try and put sort of environmental benefit in more traditional financial terms. And that was kind of getting back in some way to this broader question that I had struggled with for so long. So I really thought, well, project finance is where I'll make my career. And, um, you know, trying to do this innovative environmental project finance is fun because it's new uncharted territory. So I did that for a while and ultimately decided there were a lot of other smart people also working in energy efficiency, project finance, and so decided to migrate to an area that was even more of a, an undeveloped field, which was in distributed urban stormwater management and helping to create kind of market mechanisms that created a positive return on investment for commercial property owners that wanted to manage their stormwater on site through kind of natural green practices rather than having that polluted water kind of go into the storm system um, and in some cases, you know, causing enormous amounts of pollution, violations of the Clean Water Act. And of course, this gets got back to some of my childhood, like surfing um, challenges more directly, even though it's silly to seem to hang the whole thing on like my childhood surfing experience. It, it did feel gratifying to think I had the opportunity to kind of help cities solve this particular problem in a way that uh, was scalable and commercially viable for, again, you know, large scale investors looking to put capital into, you know, and now we're 10 years later than when I graduated law school, the kind of emerging ESG trend and like big investors wanting to put like larger amounts of capital into something like distributed urban stormwater management practices. Um, so there was a sort of convenient arc in terms of my career trajectory and the march of more and more kind of capital, capital markets interest in topics related to ESG and sustainability. So there's been a nice coincidence there. I, um, you know, whereas early in my career, I felt like I was really fighting against the grain. <laughs> um, it, it feels like now, you know, folks are really switched on to this issue in a way that I could have only dreamt about. 20 years ago when I was trying to get my start. Um, so that's kind of a bit about just the background in terms of what's motivated my career choices um, to date. Well, thank you for that. And on that, that last note, I, it is exciting. And as a young person in the space and talking to a range of people in the space, I can feel the momentum and the wave that's coming in just even having little bits of insight and stories from them saying how people are telling them how they're starting to see investments and see, I mean, climate change has been around for a bit, but just really see how people are starting to like get, dig into a position of this is going to be a big part of the future. Um, so I would love to talk to you a little bit and you mentioned it briefly, but what was it, that you saw? What was the opportunity that you saw? And maybe you could talk about that in the context of what you're doing now. Yeah, great, great question. So 
I guess um, the opportunity that I saw was really that despite all of the positive and exciting momentum around now climate issues, there was still this sort of worry in the back of my mind for the, you know, I don't know, that, that climate was still very much a non-financial matter. So, you know, and, you know, I come from the world of ESG, so I'm not like a hater on ESG, but there are limitations to the role of ESG analytics as they are currently kind of formulated in the sense that they are broadly considered to be non-financial analytics, right? So by virtue of being considered non-financial, it just sort of puts at ESG in a bucket of information that is different <laughs> from the set of information that investors would typically consider to be material to investment decisions, right? And so to me, that was like a longstanding issue and problem. It's like, we have to find a way to get environmental risk, climate risk, you know, sort of uh, explicated or, uh, you know, analytically uh, shown in a way that is digestible and ingestible for, you know, the average person sitting in a Bloomberg terminal in New York, just trying to make a good investment decision, right? Like taking all of the sort of baggage <laughs> away and just saying, okay, how can we create analytics that are not climate risk as an ESG tool, but really climate risk as financial risk? And that was the piece that I found to be largely missing from the overall very, you know, beneficial, positive, good stampede of private capital into ESG world. And that's, that's all good stuff. But it's still in the world of climate risk it was alarming because I wasn't seeing the fact, I wasn't seeing climate risk really being ingested as, as a risk element. Um, and I didn't see any company that was really thinking seriously about doing that. So that was the sort of kind of motivation for future proof. It was like, you know, can we translate climate risk into financial risk? Is it even possible to do that in a way where, you know, it could be just a number on a page the same way as any other number on a page would look on a balance sheet? Um, and what would that look like? So that was sort of the, the context for future proof. And I think one thing that we did a bit differently was like not try to look at the entire landscape of climate risk. So climate risk encompasses so many things. Um, you know, you could think about transition risk, regulatory risk, legal risk. Um, you could think about other sort of broader ecosystem disruptions that are very important socioeconomic impacts. But ultimately what we decided as a company was that if we could find one narrow aspect <laughs> of climate risk and just model that in financial terms in a credible way, we'd be doing something very important and something new. And so what we decided to take a look at was the impact of physical climate risk on real assets and later debt backed by real assets, but just narrowly looking at what is the impact of, you know, something like hurricane, wildfire, flood on property and just trying to do that correctly. And that was the sort of, you know, beginning of future proof. And so the way we went about trying to do that set our company up 
and put us on a trajectory, which I think is now very exciting, but that it started just that simply of like looking at the landscape and being like, what can we actually bite off of this very important problem and do as correctly as possible <laughs> and done to the standards that, you know, a quant, again, the proverbial person sitting at the Bloomberg terminal, like could unpack it, understand and believe in terms of an analytical approach, believe it enough that they would want to actually utilize it in say a discounted cash flow model for a real asset. And um, so what we decided to do was we gathered millions of insurer claims. And the claims stuff was super important because in the claims data is captured the historical relationship between uh, you know, a weather or a climate event of a certain type, say you know, a flood of a certain depth, characteristics of the property, and uh, you know, the financial loss, the damages to the property. And so by using AI on the claims data, we were able to create um, some novel projections of losses uh, at an asset level and taking asset level characteristics into account such that we were able to develop an analytical model that said, you know, for any address, what would be the projected climate blank losses expressed as a fraction of property value for any year from the present out to the year 2100. And that was sort of SaaS-based uh, business model that we thought, this is really cool, it's different, and indeed it is cool and different. And I think the big takeaway that we've had, this is very exciting as well, is that it turns out that once you can project asset level losses, um, you know, in a, <laughs> in a very robust way, taking asset level characteristics into account, um, what, what, what one has is actually a very strong underwriting engine for uh, property insurance. And so we inadvertently, um, in the process of trying to translate climate risk into financial risk, created a new vulnerability model for flood and hurricane wind for um, properties in the United States. And um, I use the term vulnerability model, I'll come back to what that means, but it's a very essential part of sort of the uh, catastrophe model that is broadly used in uh, selecting and pricing risk from an insurance perspective. And um, it's pretty interesting because I think in my journey as a person in the space, I thought, well, translating climate risk into financial risk, it's very important that this analytic um, is broadly used in asset, you know, this type of analytic that future proof is created and it's, it's going to have to be at the mainstream and uh, asset management. And, and that's true. I do think the asset managers are increasingly excited about sort of a, a projection of, say, operations and maintenance costs or future costs to insure a property that they can use in their discounted cash flow model. But at the same time, that sector is still looking to the insurance sector to sort of help them understand climate risk because it turns out that the sort of uh, apex of where society expects price signals from cl around climate risk to originate is in insurance. Everyone's looking to the insurance sector to be like, tell us what to do about climate risk. <laughs> and so as a company, we um, sort of overbuilt, we overshot a little bit with the traditional Kind of again, asset management space is utilizing today and ended up building something that um, is novel and exciting for the insurance sector. But I think the beauty of what we have is that by commercializing our analytics in the insurance space, 
we will have a chance to you know, broadly send that climate risk price signal um, throughout the market. And so that's kind of, and I can get more into like what we're planning to do, but I think the big exciting journey for our company has been that like by using AI on the claims data and putting kind of these analytics together in a new way, we were able to leapfrog a lot of the shortcomings in some of the existing um, industry standard models in the insurance industry. And then by you know, commercializing our analytics in the insurance sector, I think we're actually gonna be able to position ourselves to have an even broader impact than we initially had hoped was possible. Um, so that's very exciting for us. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so just to step back a little bit, I think you mentioned something in there that was key to this whole thing, which is there's this acronym ESG, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and there's these factors that companies look at to see their impact on the environment, socially with their people, and then their governance and how they like treat people within their company. And what you guys are doing is making the point that is out there but i don't think has been stated in the way that you just stated it which is that it's they're really not material things and what material means is that you can like put in a hundred dollars to investing in let's say the s of esg and say hey you're gonna get a ten dollars a hundred and ten dollars back on that investment so you make ten percent and so it's with this esg acronym you can't actually get a lot of people to allocate money to these things because they can't see how much money they're going to get in return. And what you're saying is that you guys are creating a model that actually allows an investor to say, we want to invest this much money in this thing because we know what the return is going to be. That's really cool. And I think it's something that the whole industry is like, how the heck are we going to get this whole capital problem? How are we going to figure this out? Um, it's amazing that you guys are doing it. So I would love to hear a bit more about how you calculate climate risk. So could you say, maybe step back and even say like, what does, what does that really mean if you're gonna, if you're looking at like, like a hurricane as a hurricane obviously has huge potential to, to damage a building, right? And so how are you guys calculating the risk of that hurricane damaging the building? And like, how do you calculate that price? Right. So first I would just say on the topic of ESG, there are a lot of entities that have like identified the issue that you mentioned as something that's worth working on. Um, and one entity called the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board is one of them that's trying to really create standards around what ESG issues mean um, in a deeper sort of sense of like what is material and what are the standards for different industries in, in, in that sense? And there are, you know, there's a whole, <laughs> a lot of a lot of organizations I would say doing good work in that area. Um, so the good news is there are lots of smart people thinking about the problem. Um, in terms of what we built here at Future Proof, I sort of glossed over this um, initially, but you know, taking a step back and thinking about the catastrophe modeling industry, um, it's an analytics industry that helps that creates models that help uh, you know, the insurance sector um, select and price risk. And there are two, broadly speaking, catastrophe models are very complex, but breaking it down into the simplest possible um, kind of description, there are two 
broad components of the catastrophe model. One is the hazard component, which broadly speaks to the probability of you know, some event happening in some place. All right, so think of probability of a flood of a certain depth, for example, at a certain location. And there's been an enormous amount of investment in trying to improve on the hazard component of these catastrophe risk models over the past you know, 30 years. Um, and that's been enabled by advances in computing science, obviously advances in, in you know, many different ways that have really helped the industry move forward in that regard. Um, and there's another component of catastrophe risk model as well, which is called the vulnerability component broadly. Again, I'm, I'm kind of encapsulating a lot of things in these terms, but the vulnerability component of the model basically translates from the probability of the event to the impact of that event on losses. So the translation into something more financial, an average annual loss. And there's been a lot less innovation on the vulnerability component of the catastrophe risk model um, over the past 30 years, which partially just goes to, you know, the path dependency <laughs> of, you know, who works in catastrophe risk modeling and what types of expertise they have and who they tend to hire. Um, so there's a lot, there are interesting reasons why there's been just this sort of stasis on the vulnerability side of the cat model. But suffice to say that, you know, for US flood and hurricane wind, the vulnerability models are, are quite weak. And there aren't a lot of people who have been giving them like super deep thought or trying to recreate a vulnerability model. And so if I was talking to someone in insurance, I would say we built a new vulnerability model for US flood and hurricane wind. That's like the one sentence description of future proof <laughs> to an insurer. <laughs> um, so that's the thing that we did that was different. We, we aren't a team, we do have climate science advisors and we're strong in that regard, but we're not innovating on that. There are many other firms that are innovating on getting more and more granular on the hazard side of the you know, stuff like, oh, what is, what it, you know, what's the probability of a certain type of wildfire of, or a certain type of event? Um, we license that from data providers that specialize in just projecting, yeah, the flood return period, for example. Um, and that's where a lot of climate risk analytics firms are, I would say. Like, large firms that are doing good work are almost all, just like the cat modelers are, uh, focused on the hazard component of understanding climate risk. And uh, very, very few firms, if any, <laughs> have chosen to focus on the vulnerability component. And um, I think part of the reason we decided to go there, because my co-founder, he's a PhD economist, and we hired kind of, you know, folks with masters in economics and data science who really were expert in trying to delve into you know the impact on on losses at the financial level it just happens to be the sort of dna of our team was designed to go straight to the projection of losses going back to our animating purpose right it's like that's all we were interested in um, effectively so we built a team specifically to focus on that without an understanding at the time that that had been an area that was just this sort of like dusty corner of cat modeling that hadn't really been um, you know, innovated in, in, in decades. So that's sort of like where we fit into the, the broader universe of what's going on out there in the climate risk analytics space um, and why we're, why we're different. 
So it has to do with taking the understanding of an event like a flood happening and then being able to actually put a dollar sign on what the losses could be in that event. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Um, and that, that process is done with artificial intelligence and is complex. Yes. <laughs> okay. Probably <laughs> a, a, a region of this area that I will avoid just for people listening. Uh, maybe even myself. Uh, <laughs> but I would love to hear about the people that are using your product. So is it government? Is it the private sector? And how are they using it? How do you envision them using it in the future? Sure. So to date, what we built were analytics that we've been able to sell kind of throughout the financial sector. So, you know, effectively we built an API and a very simple web app that can return projections of asset level losses um, actually for any property in the world from the present out to the year 2100. Again, going back to our sort of animating purpose of, you know, if you wanted to create a discounted cash flow model for an asset and take climate into account in that model, we wanted to provide like a year by year, you know, you can cut the data however you want, you know, um, in terms of our, how our web app and API work. And so we translated the projection of losses into actually line items that appear in many typical discounted cash flow models. So they'll have a line item for projected increase in insurance and operations and maintenance cost. So what we project as a company for those customers is, yes, we project the asset level losses expressed as a fraction of asset value, but we also translate that into projection support percent increase in insurance and repair and maintenance costs. And then for debt investors in real estate, we also translate that into a probability of default and a loss given default, and then wrap that up into like a basis point score for say a bank that holds whole residential loans on portfolio to better understand in the context of like a climate risk stress test, what it would mean for their portfolio. Um, if you know, they are a New York regional bank and a cat five hurricane hits New York city. Um, right now, you know, banks are flying pretty much blind on that issue. They don't have the analytics to be able to do a meaningful stress test. And I think at Future Proof, we've broken some new ground there in terms of creating analytics that fit that purpose. That being said, so that's been who we've been selling to to date, kind of B2B SaaS type business model. Going forward, what we're really going to emphasize is commercializing in the insurance sector taking our analytical model and building an insurance company around it. So starting off uh, as what's called a managing general agent, an MGA, which is a company that specializes in underwriting, for example. Um, it's, it's almost like an insurance company, except for it doesn't have its own balance sheet. So it's an easy way to sort of get a foot in the door in the insurance sector. So we'll start off as an MGA and uh, begin underwriting risk on behalf of carriers and reinsurers. And that's gonna be our sort of stepping stone into insurance. But our hope is ultimately to become the climate branded insurer of the future and become really this sort of generational company that uh, is able to leverage our unique view on climate risk and our unique set of analytics to 
design and deploy sort of climate smart insurance products. Um, these are really exciting innovations that don't exist yet, but things like longer term insurance. So if you're a commercial property owner right now or any property owner, your, insur your insurance policy gets renewed every year. So there's a sort of disconnect there. You as a property owner don't have the certainty that you're going to have affordable insurance going forward or in some cases that you'll have access to insurance at all. As an insurance company, you know, you're just kind of in this year to year cycle where, you know, you might not have a long term view on a particular property's risk. And at Future Proof, we can kind of fix that brokenness by developing a longer term relationship with our policyholders where we can say, hey, we understand the, prop the, the risks your property is subject to, not just this year, but over the next 10 years. And we might be able to come up with some very exciting ways to align incentives for investments in adaptation and resiliency for that particular property owner so they can have some financial incentives through reduced insurance premia or even other kind of exciting mechanisms borrowed from energy efficiency retrofit finance, but really start to try and reformulate how insurance works and all getting back to this initial very core principle of like sending the climate risk price signal and in so doing kind of aligning incentives so that folks can make the type of investments that need to be made to make our economy first the property is ultimately but ultimately the economy and our human ecosystem like more resilient to what's already inevitable in a lot of ways. Um, so that's really where we want to position ourselves over the long term is really this sort of climate smart insurer of the future and being able to innovate and deploy um, not just longer term insurance, but community scale catastrophe insurance or climate link default insurance for banks. There's just so much that can be done out there. And I think the exciting thing for us is this um, inkling that, and in some cases like true confidence that <laughs> we have we uniquely have analytics that can enable us to, to create those new products and that is really really exciting and that's what kind of gets us out of bed in the morning as a company is this notion that we are, we are actually positioning ourselves to do something really world-changing that sounds incredible um and i think that one term in there that you mentioned is community insurance could be pretty powerful for the individual and someone that can really try to relate to not even the climate issue but like the climate issue in terms of like their context and it's something where a lot of people today aren't really affected by climate you know it's, it's really people that are living in places that are right on the water that have kind of slowly started to begin to feel the experience of what climate change really means and so it's gonna be something where communities all over the world are impacted. And if they can feel, an individual in that community can feel safe in some respects about their home and, and not like losing everything, that sounds extremely powerful. Um, I'd love to wrap up with a question about why this matters. So why, why does this truly matter? I feel like we've, we as a you know, human civilization, in the absence of this type of information, are just kind of hurtling 
into the darkness. And there needs to be a change, a systemic change. And I'm happy to say, I think there are lots of systemic changes that are underway already. But I do think that a reformulation of the potential of what insurance can do to kind of, again, realign incentives is a very meaningful part of the answer. And again, it goes back to this issue. I think um, (laughs) we look to the insurance sector for these very essential signals around what risk means. And the fact that I think by and large, the insurance sector has not taken climate risk into account. And in many ways, it's not able to because of the way the sector is structured, the year-to-year nature of insurance policies in most cases. There are a lot of sort of legacy challenges to helping the industry move ahead on this issue. It is moving in the right direction now, but it's just like any large industry, you know, slow to change. And I just feel like uh, until, until the insurance sector really wakes up to climate risk, and I don't mean, you know, you could talk to insurance companies and they'll tell you about their ESG policies, but I mean, working on climate risk, like it's part of the core underwriting. <laughs> which is different from having like a very comprehensive ESG policy. Uh, I, I just think that's still, that still remains to be done. And I think having that done is going to be a requirement for humanity to make the kind of progress that needs to be made on climate change. I know that sounds like very grandiose, but it's, no, I... it's, uh, it's true. I mean, I think we're, we're lost without the insurance sector getting this right. Yeah, I, I completely hear you. And I think that there is a problem with people's incentives. And I love how you describe it as a way to align incentives because people think about investing money and, and like we've kind of talked about how they're going to make money and people think about risk and how that they can lose money based on measurements that exist now. And you're essentially creating an entirely new way to say, hey, what is the risk? How are ways that an individual organization can lose money from this imposing upcoming, it's here right now, but the, with the true effects of the, the climate change, when that happens, like how, how is that going to be, how are people going to consider that financially? And it, it is systemically changing and the work that you're doing is amazing. And I feel blessed and privileged to be able to talk to you at this stage of the company and what you're building and to see like 10 years look back and be like, man, I got to interview Alyssa when she hadn't become a billionaire yet. (laughs) So it's, it's awesome. Very exciting. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, really. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions and uh, also appreciate your show. So thank you, Luke, for the work you're doing too. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at Why It Matters and on Instagram at Why underscore it underscore matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. 
I'll see y'all soon.